I mean, I don't know what we're talking about, but I mean, okay. Nothing. No, no, I'm joking. I mean, well, I actually don't know what we're talking about, but um, we could start with the fact that I predicted Amy Coney Barrett before anyone else did. Is that her name? Is Coney? <laughs> I think so. Unless, wait, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Why? I don't know. How do you spell it? C O N E Y. Yeah, Coney. That's her middle name, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I knew it was like something with a C, but I, I wasn't sure what it was. Um. Yeah, you saw that tweet, right? I saw. I saw. Good work. Yeah. Good work there. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I think you were alone in 2018. No one had heard of her. So yeah, we should just share this with our listeners. What I did on Twitter. So this is actually from September 27th, 2018. Yeah. So almost exactly two years ago. Yeah. To the day. Um. um and uh, my tweet was actually very simple and without any context so people can't call me out for they don't know what i was trying to say but it's i said three words colon amy coney barrett right that's it right <laughs> but i mean what was the context what was happening to you i don't even ago? fully i don't fully remember but i think that the point i was making was why are conservatives standing by brad kavanaugh considering how controversial, you know, uh, accusations, allegations, and all that. Why not go for someone who doesn't have those past controversies attached to them? Someone who has a pure record, at least in terms of moral comportment and their private life. So, Amy Coney Barrett, a true conservative, conservatives lover, religious conservatives in, in particular. Um, she's a serious jurist, all that stuff. Why not go for her? So, I mean, and why why do you think they didn't? Um, because I think Brett Kavanaugh became the rallying cry for even anti-Trump and never Trump conservatives that if they backed down on Kavanaugh, um liberals would liberals would sort of um taste blood and want more. And it so it became a power struggle, really. It wasn't about whether or not um, the sexual allegations against um, Brett Kavanaugh were true or not. It was about should conservatives back down, and if they do, what that means for the sense of liberal victory. Um, and that would be a precedent that would be set from that point on, from their standpoint, that liberals could torpedo a nomination um, and sort of shape the the debate around Supreme Court justices and all that. But of course, I mean, but nominations have been torpedoed before. It wouldn't have been the first time. I mean, you know, my my theory is that they they just wanted to keep an anti-abortion woman ready to go to replace uh, RBG because they wanted they wanted to stick it in. That oh, interesting. Say that it's I like thought of that. You get you lose a woman. Here's a woman back right at you, <laughs> women. I think that that's my theory. That's what. But, that's but what it's that's. also a bit problematic because then they're assuming that RBG would die during Trump's of term. Of course, of course, that's what they're assuming. I mean, we were okay. all waiting for it. See, but I was caught off guard by RBG's death. I mean, I wasn't following her her the complications from her cancer. And I was, I was, so I didn't know that she was in that dire situation. So yeah, I really, so I mean, she almost like she almost died like three times before this year. Like really, boomlets. almost died. I mean, little little news boomlets, like off she goes to the hospital for cancer treatment and stuff like that. And then I don't read like, Demir. <gasps> I don't read clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what? Like I don't really have I. 
uh, it was just a joke on Twitter. I don't actually know a lot about her except that the religious conservatives on Twitter that I follow think that she's amazing. Um, the only opinion I really do have is that Democrats should not try to attack her on the basis of faith. I mean, that's something I've, I've always been uncomfortable with when um, Democrats try to impugn someone's um, character or their, their suitability for the court based on whether they are a practicing Catholic. That kind of religious litmus test to me is really problematic and emblematic, I think, of a bigger problem that Democrats have where they just can't respect people of faith. And that puts off people who would otherwise support Democrats, but won't and can't because they see Democrats as hostile to religion. How, how's, how's, uh, uh, what's, what's, is there any doctrinal stance in Islam on abortion? We're pretty chill on abortion. Yeah. I mean, relative to Catholics at least. So yeah. uh, abortion is generally permissible during the first trimester. Mm. After that, um, generally not. Yeah. Um, but most abortions do take place in the first trimester. Right. I mean, the bigger issue here would be, I mean, Islam has obviously a prohibition on premarital sex. Right. So it's an interesting question. Well, most abortions or many abortions in the first trimester happen outside of the context of marriage, right? So that's already haram or um, impermissible according to Islamic law, regardless of the specific abortion component. So the Islamic response would be people shouldn't be having sex in the first place before marriage. So they wouldn't get to the point of having to decide on whether or not to abort. Yeah, right. Right. I, I mean, you know, the, the thing about the, the religious test, though, right? I mean, it's an, it's an abortion test. It's not a religious test exactly that Democrats are on about. I mean, it's it, it gets to the deeper point that 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 uh, making uh you know, well, Roe v. Wade, rather than it being something that, uh, again, is is should be sorted out in you know as a as a matter of legislation, it was made as a as a right and therefore like non contestable in a lot of ways. Whereas you know, uh, I don't know. I remember years ago there was an article in the Economist about um, looking at abortion legislation like across like Western Europe. And, you know, it's just, it's, 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 it's a patchwork, uh, with various different restrictions, et cetera. Whereas, you know, uh, the United States took this judicial road and it's sort of poisoned everything from, from everything. So, I mean, therefore now we talk about it as a religious test, but it's not a religious test. It's an abortion test, right? Am I, I mean, again, this yeah, is not my, it, this is not my thing. So I don't, this is something yeah. I really very, very casually it's look at from the outside. You're but. right. It's primarily about abortion, but even if the abortion issue wasn't paramount, you'd still have concerns around gay marriage, um, around um, religious freedom issues. Um, of course, all those are ultimately tied to abortion. So it's hard to disentangle them in the current debate. But I think that um, if someone was a devout Catholic who had previously been open about their discomfort with homosexuality. I imagine that would be seen as um, disqualifying. Again, putting is, aside abortion, you know, this is again one of those things that where not my issue. Don't follow it very closely. Um, but even there, the idea. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot from the hip now. I, if I <laughs> if I if I remember correctly, uh, there was a time. Um, where I think like the, you know, uh, 
basically the gay rights movement would have been fine to compromise on the idea of um, just don't call it marriage. So everyone, no one gets married. The state doesn't recognize marriages. It just recognizes all the rights that come with whatever kind of union. So there's something that's not called marriage. It's just some sort of you know, union civil certificate. Union, yeah. yeah, civil unions, basically. Even Obama supported civil unions and not marriage as recently as his first term. But it's, I think it was Andrew Sullivan that actually turned that around. Uh, and I don't remember the, the details of it. it was, he he then said it's, it, it needed to be because, in fact, social conservatives were, were blocking even that happening. Um, so I, I think at some point he flipped it around. It's like, no, the real conservative case for for gay marriage is one to make us all boring bourgeois schmucks and, and therefore, you know, uh, we all deserve to have the right. But it, in, in doing that, it made it made it a right, right? And so it became uncontestable. And now conservatives find themselves on the, the short end of that stick. It just the, the the bigger point I want to make is that that it's it's the uh, recurring peril and mistake of of throwing this to the courts is that then it just pollutes everything. It just makes everything uh, a question of rights and, yeah. and, and, and not, not debatable basically. And I'm coming, yeah. Yeah. and I'm coming around to that view. Um, Sam Moyne had a really good piece in 2018 about how progressives have come to rely too much yeah. on the courts instead of actually winning voters over and persuading them that their positions are the right ones and we've come to rely on unelected institutions um, to, to kind of get our way in public life and in cultural life. And by we here, I just simply mean folks on the left side of the spectrum. And I think that's had um, a damaging effect on how we do electoral politics. And what, what Sam Moyne argues for in this piece, basically, we'll include in, in the show notes, is progressives have to completely restructure their relationship to the Supreme Court. And I think that's become even more obvious in light of RBG's death, that um, if we can't protect abortion rights, if we can't protect um, equality for for um, gays in America, then um, if we can't persuade people on the state level, then that's a problem and that's a deeper problem that has to be addressed and this sort of, you know, the Supreme Court just comes and resolves these problems for us and essentially legislates. I mean, isn't that the conservative crit- critique that the courts do what Congress no longer does? And that's just untenable. Bench, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've been thinking about, personally for me, I, I, is um, it's been on my mind is, is basically, you know, uh, how far gone are we? You know, uh, on the one hand, I feel like... Uh, the, the the temperature keeps rising right i mean uh the the your the reaction your piece got is just sort of one part of it your piece of the atlantic two weeks ago um but it's just this this at least rhetorical escalation to near revolutionary talk um i might as well mention it now like uh our our guest from last week nils gilman got in a bit of a mess on twitter um by uh you know uh tweeting uh, what I think is a, ultimately an unfortunate tweet about uh, Michael Anton. Um, and, uh, you know, what that what that sort of drove to me is like, I've known Nils for years and, and I, I, I know that Nils does not condone political violence, but he found himself uh, tweeting something that, you know, it's kind of kind of you'd have to really, really be, uh, you know, how do I put it? It's, it's a political statement. Anything you tweet in 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 partisan terms is political and it's it was uh 
uh, I think a, 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 he was wishing that, 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 uh, that Anton would end up like, uh, uh, this, this Nazi that was shot by de Gaulle after World War II, basically. So, you know, whether it's, it's explicitly a call for, for the execution of Michael Anton or a rhetorical flourish that went too far, uh, doesn't matter. It's a, it's, it's, it's a sense of like rhetorical radicalization. So on the one hand, I feel like, you know, that sort of snapped me to, to really thinking through, you know, right now, how, you know, you and I, and a lot of our friends, I think we're, we're convinced that, that generally, you know, like the United States is a lot healthier than it is. And I also. Wait, the U.S. is a lot healthy, a lot healthier. Than, Say it one more time. I think that, I mean, isn't the consensus that basically, you know, the country is not on the verge of, at least that's my, maybe it's not the, the consensus, consensus among our friends, <laughs> our friends that the, the country is not on the verge of like proper revolution, you know, that like a lot of this stuff is, 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 uh, Maybe overdone. Yeah. We believe America is stronger and more resilient than everyone else on Twitter thinks it is. But who knows? Maybe I'm – I mean I'm starting to doubt some of my own position in light of recent weeks because I'm getting caught up in this rhetorical um, overreach. I see it every day and it makes me think that American democracy is more threatened than it actually is. And I think that's – I don't think my, – my parents, for example, who are not on Twitter – I don't think it would occur to them that civil war is a real possibility, but that's the kind of rhetoric that elites are engaging in. But I wonder if you're not engaging in that rhetoric, would to what extent would you be aware that this discourse is happening among commentators and and elites and all that? But that's what I mean. I I I I I feel like on the one hand that the country is fine and that like in fact it's going to be a blowout for Biden. (laughs) <laughs> and and everyone's going to shrug and, it'll, and it's like whatever you know and like it's basically because Trump is such a social media creature and and all of this just sort of happens in the confines of social media, uh, you know it sort of stays there. Um, but then I wonder, you know, it's like what what is what is a revolution, right? It's not like the French Revolution every day was shit was happening and people were going around and and you know throwing. Uh, uh, you know, nobility and, and like hanging them off, off of uh, light poles. And that, that would happen once every so often. And then you'd have nothing happen for months at a time. Um, or, or, you know, any of the unrest in the interwar period in Germany, it's not like it was day in, day out, just, just utter chaos. Uh, but it was just like sort of a steady escalation and a deterioration. And maybe, maybe it is this like, you know, hermetic bubble that like your parents and, 99% of Americans who, you know, are going to vote and, uh, don't really follow this nonsense that we engaged in here and we think is so important. Uh, they'll just cast their vote and be like, Oh, Joe Biden won. Great. Don't like him, but whatever, you know, like on with my life and then life goes on yeah. or, or something else is going on. And I, I wonder, I've been wondering this week, Shadi, whether you and I, uh, observing all of this, would know that something was going on if it was going on, like something bad was going on, whether we'd be able to call it. And this is not to say that all the people that have been, that have been, um, moaning about, about, uh, totalitarian, uh, uh, America, uh, for the last four years are right. But I wonder whether there's like a, there's a kind of, of mutual radicalization that is nevertheless happening. That's not like Trump is Hitler, but is more like, you know, Trump is already the manifestation of a society that's pretty far gone. He's accelerated for the last four years. 
and we are in a worse place than you and I and a lot of people uh, are, you know, willing to even countenance. So let's, so maybe let's be, I'll be self-critical right now. Go on. I don't think I would be able to call it if there was a revolution coming or an impending civil war, I would get it wrong because under no real plausible scenario that I can envision now, would I think, would I actually shift to the other side and say, shit, this is a real possibility of democratic breakdown and of America ceasing to be a a full democracy. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm in part because I have, if I put my emotions to the side, I have a kind of broader structural outlook. I know from a political science standpoint that there has never been an old longstanding democracy that has turned into an authoritarian regime outside the context of foreign invasion or occupation. Um, So in that sense, it hasn't actually happened before. And if it did happen this one time, it would be quite literally unprecedented. So I think that even if we did have a civil war, I wouldn't necessarily regret my position because I think my position is well-founded. Of course, there's always the 2 to 3% chance of something very unlikely happening, but that doesn't mean, that wouldn't necessarily mean that retroactively I would have been wrong. Well, you're, you're conflating something though, okay. there, though, right? I mean, in the sense that civil war, I'm not talking about authoritarianism. I'm talking about civil war. I'm talking about breakdown. And now, yeah. Well, authoritarianism is also democratic breakdown in this context, right? But, but what I'm talking about is, is, um, you know, I mean, uh, can't one have a, 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 a proper, you know, like what I'm saying, authoritarianism may or may not emerge on the other side of prolonged, uh, disintegration. Um, but we could still have prolonged disintegration where America ceases to be the America we know. I, I'm just saying, I think like the, the dichotomy between democratic versus authoritarian misses perhaps exactly what perhaps is happening or maybe well, not. We, we already have some level of disintegration. So in that sense, we both feel that something, something troubling is going on, maybe more so myself than you, where I actually look at, look at this and I, I worry about a mass disillusion with democratic politics. And that's what prompted my Atlantic piece the other week yeah. is that I already saw the real possibility that millions of Americans, millions of Democrats will lose faith in the premise of our democratic system. And that premise, to put it simply, is that political change is possible through electoral means. Yeah. So if that actually happens, if Trump wins and we have this mass disillusion, that's already going to be dis, you know a sign of disintegration. Um, now, what that means in practice, what that looks like on a day-to-day basis, that's what I'm not really sure about. But I can certainly envision a scenario where a big chunk of the country um, disengages from the political process. It's not like they're going to take up arms. I mean, liberals don't have enough arms to take up. So that's not really a plausible scenario. And also, I don't think liberals should be engaging in, in fantasies of civil conflict because they're not well positioned Do you, you know, in that fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, here's the other part. I, 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 uh, 
I, I wonder if this is where we, you know, like even that where you put it there, this is what I've been thinking about this week is like whether that doesn't like cloud us, cloud me and you from really like obstruct our own ability to grasp what's happening. I think that that's it. That's almost, you know, and you see it. It's not just me and you. It's just everyone when they talk about like, oh my God, you know, revolution, whatever. They have like sort of a cartoonish vision of what this looks like. Or even on the left when they're worried about, you know, disgruntled Trump supporters taking up their guns. Like a bunch of fat hicks with like AKs. You know how quickly you could put that shit down with the police? You know, like like how quickly you just, you, you just, it's, it's not, there isn't like a credible militia force on either side of civilians with guns to be able to do anything. Our, we have, we have a well-trained, uh, government apparatus that could wipe the floor with any citizen uprising anywhere, like super quickly and restore order and restore democratic norms, however you want to put it, you know? So I'm, I'm with you, Demir, on that generally, but then I'm just, now thinking about what a conservative might say to, to what you just said, they might say, well, hey, we have had a citizen uprising over the past few months. It's been largely peaceful, but there have been bouts of violence and um, prop, you know, destruction, property damage, all that. Yeah. And the government hasn't able hasn't been able to get it under control in certain cities and has been and and that that to me is a good thing. I I wouldn't have wanted the Trump administration to quote unquote put down a citizen uprising. But I think there is a question of the will to use force, which is generally good. We don't want our government apparatus to be using excessive force unless it's it's a last resort, unless quite literally the republic depends on it. Okay. No, I mean fine. Uh I all I'm getting at is that that I'm not concerned about it. One way or the other, I'm just not concerned about it. What, what my opinion on when one should put down these things or not, notwithstanding. Um, it's, I, I just don't think it's a realistic concern. So when people say the revolution's not happening because, uh, or the revolution's about to happen because, you know, either, either, uh, red staters with, uh, paunches and AKs or I don't know what kind of like Antifa plus like New York Times editors will, you know, like, like storm the republic and i don't think that's what it looks like and that's what i'm getting at is that like what we're blinded to it's it's let's be a little more pessimistic about it it's it's like um sensible people otherwise sensible people are issuing death threats on twitter um at some point and biden's election doesn't necessarily need to to lead to the end of this uh at some point um some entrepreneur uh takes it to himself and like, you know, kills some, some prominent elite person just like that on the street. And then, you know, maybe there's some like tit for that. That's hard to contain, I would say. And then you start getting this kind of like violent factionalism coming up. That is again, not like a, a, a serious threat, but it's like an acid to everything. I'm just wondering whether, whether this election in fact will solve anything. In my more optimistic modes, I'd saying like, uh, Biden wipes the floor with them, um, you know, maybe even uh, trifecta gets all all houses and then starts pushing through like, a you know, a fairly ambitious left leaning agenda, which allows then uh, Republicans chastened as they are to say, wait, they've just vacated the center and then they can regroup in the center as a strong opposition, come back in the midterms, take back 
uh, the Senate and and perhaps even like claw back chunks of the House. I don't even know what it looks like. Maybe it's not really. That sounds like a functioning democracy. I mean, yeah, that right. Sounds that's somewhat me. appealing. No, that's though, that's yeah. that's the optimistic version. But what if what if in fact like this loss is just radicalizing for the right, and at the same time Biden's a failure because he can't keep the center. I that's the part that I'm trying to think that like maybe this is what what I'm. I have been missing in the sense of thinking like how bad off we are. If in fact all this noise on social media and all this sort of sniping is not just venting and silliness and like COVID related, uh, you know, uh, like stir craziness that is leading people to lash out more on Twitter than normally they would like more irresponsibly than they would. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. But then, then we just end up with kind of what we have now, which is a slow, and steady disintegration where something feels wrong, but we muddle through the system functions to some degree, even if incompetently, and we get through it and democracy doesn't fall apart. We just have this weird standoff, this kind of de facto pluralistic, uh, sorry, de facto, um, this de facto agonistic antagonistic state where people kind of hate each other, but they're not actually doing a whole lot about it in, in actual physical terms. People continue hating the other side. People continue freaking out on Twitter. You have disillusion with the democratic process. You have legitimacy undermined to some degree, but nothing completely falls apart. But, but so that, I guess that's the thing. I, and maybe this is where you and I, Ultimately, I mean, I know this is where you and I ultimately maybe differ on no, this. No, Demir, that- don't say that. No, wait. There's there's <laughs> a there's a place where we ultimately differ. You think it's that foundational? Well, I mean, don't it's 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 a it's a it's a valuation sort of thing because I to you, I think you know, uh, ultimate health is measured in the fact of whether we are or aren't a democracy. I think that's maybe a mistake to think about it hmm. in those terms. That is like that is to say. Um, I'm not going to say something like a a a vibrant um uh autocracy is better than a dysfunctional democracy, but I will say but. that that <laughs> but I will say that a dysfunctional democracy may not be viable. That but is to it say that is that viable. is No, I don't think so because I would I would argue to you and this is to circle back to the Amy Cohn Barrett thing and the whole sort of process of the last, you know, this I've written it. I've said it before. This is not about Trump. Trump is is epiphenomenal to like a whole lengthy process of disintegration that's accelerated. That is to say, you know, I don't know how you want to measure it. I'm I I've written about it and measured it that the end of the Cold War really kicked this off in a big way because the big challenge is gone. I, I think that's too simplistic. That's not everything. And, you know, if you look at like Roe and all this stuff preceded it, the culture wars preceded uh, Pat Buchanan's speech in, in 91. But, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, the question is, 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 you know, I, again, there's this belief like democracy is sustainable, et cetera, best outcomes. Maybe not. You know, and this is not to say that they're better things. Maybe in the Churchillian sense, it's it's better than all the others, even though it's a fucking shit pile. But I wonder a couple of questions: whether a country as big as the United States, as diverse as the as the United States, and yeah, last week we talked about about uh, you know the virtues of federalism and devolving power down. But I wonder, I wonder whether uh, things as they're rigged up right now in the United States, for all sorts of reasons, maybe can 
persist as a deeply dysfunctional democracy for 10, 20, 30 years. But maybe we're, you know, this kind of stuff at this accelerated pace, we're a failed state. Now, a failed democracy. How? But why Why isn't what we have now as as tense and uncomfortable as it is sustainable? Like, why Why couldn't we live in something resembling this state of affairs for the next 10 to 20 years? Um, I, I We can. I mean, we may be forced to. But I, I, I think it would be a mistake to say uh, that this is the new normal. I would say that we're on a slope downwards. So this plus more violence and just worse all the time. Like I said, imagine, you know, that you just sort of start getting um, that assassinations happen more. That's just one thing that I think could happen. Uh, political assassinations. We haven't had one in this country for a while, quite frankly. But that um, already happened in the 60s. Right. No, but. And, but, we, we, and we survived. We got through it. So I, I, I wonder if, well, for one thing, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, Maybe, maybe, maybe we get like a, a Reaganist sort of revival, but there is a story to be told that it's been on a, on a, on a, on a sort of downward slope since the sixties that we sort of, it, it, it rebounded, maybe stabilized and plateaued under Reagan. Maybe it was like, you know, some, some sense of coming up, but then has been, you know, through the prosperity of the nineties that helped buttress it to a certain extent, helped, helped keep it together. But now we're, we're, we're again in a, on a, on a path to dissolution that maybe, what it is that 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 kept this country together was a cohesive sense among the elites who were wasps, who were homogenous, that were able to keep it together for this long. That in fact, a, a certain level of pluralism, a certain level of discord on the scale of the United States, in fact, doesn't work, and we're headed towards something bad. And this is what I'm yeah. saying. It's like if you're if you're just saying, well, we're not an autocracy, we're a democracy, and therefore, yay. I think we might be missing something by saying that. That's all. Hmm. Hmm. Now you don't need. You don't need to have. You don't need to have. You don't need to have Hitler to 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 be a failed state. You know. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Um, so, Demir, yeah. I think that um, this might sound like a cliche in the context, mm -hmm. and we've said it. But I've said it before. I think that this applies to public life, but also to private life, and I think it's just something that people should keep in mind going forward is that things are never as good as they seem mm -hmm. and things are never as bad as they seem. Yeah. That what's generally likely in most scenarios is something vaguely and unsatisf unsatisfying, unsatisfactorily in the middle. And that's why I think that you're actually whatever what what you laid out earlier I think is actually very compelling and perhaps you should write something about it that we'll, we might very well have a whatever moment that in November or December we're all going to be freaked out but things will revert to some kind of tolerable mean if especially if Biden wins perhaps only if Biden wins but a lot of people will say hey Biden won by a clear a clear enough margin and life goes on and in a post covid moment god willing people can start to maybe focus more again on their personal lives on their on just being normal people who aren't freaking out nonstop people who have mental illness who spend a lot of their time on twitter 
will end up getting the treatment they need. And I'm not even saying, no, no, I'm not even, I mean, obviously that can sound as a little bit snarky that uh-huh. I'm accusing my critics of being mentally ill. Yeah. Mentally Ill. But again, like, I mean this seriously that there are you people mean it who lovingly. need help. <laughs> lovingly. I want people who need the help to get the help. Yeah. And I mean, that's the best case scenario. And um, I don't think it's, I think it's more likely than the worst case scenario. And even talking to you right now is making me feel better about my country, about our country, that because I'm I'm on Twitter, I try to limit my Twitter use, but I still go on Twitter every day and I see what people are saying and I start to lose faith and I have to protect myself against that. And that's why having a conversation like this is important because it reminds me that like when you take a step back it isn't actually as bad as it seems. That's what I would say. Obviously, there's a lot of people who would disagree. Yeah, no, I mean, overall, I, I, I think that that's true, and I think most normies don't care to the extent that that mentally dis- mentally challenged people on Twitter do. Um, not challenged, sorry, ill, different. <laughs> um, but you know, again, it's just a, it's a, it's, it's. I guess what I'm I, what I'm sort of pivoting to is that is a like a like maybe a a, uh, a longer um, uh, time frame uh, sort of sketch of health and I, I I again I know I know your commitments to to agonism and that being all that requires but it's like it, it's it's you know the the to me the the some of these questions about, you know, self-determination, sovereignty and democracies and things like that. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I've, I've said this before, you know, it's like, it's, it's, um, it's so, it is so much tied to identity and group identities and, and belief in some sort of group identity. But, but, you know, again, and, and God help me, the world is not the Balkans, but I, I do think that the Balkans have something to teach, especially the post Cold War idealist world, in the sense that you know, again, the 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 attempt to to architect the ideal, the post Cold War, you know, we've learned from World War II and the Holocaust and Kumbaya, let's all live together, failed in Bosnia. Now, again, it's not people would argue it's not because the ideas were bad and flawed, but just the implementation was crap. There's a lot to it. The implementation was crap, but there's something still that always gnaws on me in this sort of stuff. That is that if you don't have a coherent identity or if that coherent identity has been shattered um, and that politics becomes dominated by sub identities, which is what has happened in Bosnia specifically. Um, uh, it's just not going to work. It's just democracy doesn't work if you have that. And then, you know, the, 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 uh, the other part of it is that, you know, like, uh, the, the counter example of the societies now, you know, with varying levels of, of deep corruption, but, but, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's Croatia, Croatia from where I'm from, um, it functions largely because it, it doesn't have ethnic minorities because of the war. And that you can extrapolate that even further to all the democracies of, of Central and Eastern Europe, that World War II and, and all the, the barbarities and cleansings and murders and, and all the rest of this created viable states out of these places. 
and you know they function because because of uh, you know the the orgies of of ethnic cleansing that made it possible. And so it's 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 that ugly truth that I think too many people don't want to accept, and why I in general you know agonism all good and fine if you have faith in some sort of you know process. I just it's 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 not human nature, and I guess the 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 saving grace of America has been a certain kind of American I- identity and idea that you know I, that idea and the identity are, are sort of twinned and something we've talked about a lot on this show, but it's it's I wonder I just wonder I wonder whether the 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 American miracle uh, snaps not in November not in December, um, ten years fifteen years because. If you take the longer look at it, I don't think we're we're on a steady state of you know agonistic democracy which muddles through and we're still better off than anyone else as a result. I wonder if we're not on a glide path down. Yeah, and that's why just hearing you describe describe that it, it makes me think that what we're about to see in the coming thirty years will be one of the most remarkable and potentially frightening experiments of the modern era. Um, it, it could be remarkable in a positive way that we could be the one exception to the rule, the one country because of our exceptionalism that was able to survive and pros- prosper despite the breaking down of a national identity, that these, sub- these sub-identities would grow, but we would somehow still be successful. Now, what does successful mean in this context? I guess that's also part of the question but I think we're we're going to test the proposition of how much division and agonism a country can sustain without disintegrating. Um, and I still have this faith that America is capable of doing what other countries haven't been able to do. And I guess we'll find out. And there's just no, really no way of knowing. I mean, but we, we all have agency in this too. I mean, we're going to be protagonists in this struggle. And I, by you, I mean just people like me and you who are engaged in these debates. We all have agency. The collective of the individuals who form elite opinion or who form counter elite opinion, we, we have choices to make about how we engage in this very divisive debate. And... um and I just hope people will make better decisions. I hope, you know, again, because I focus on my own side, I hope Democrats will make better decisions and folks on the left will make better decisions about not being maximalist, about acknowledging that conservatives and Republicans should have some part in power that there should be, you know, so, and this goes back to what we were talking about, I think last last week to some degree, um, who has cultural power, who has political power. And, you know, when we think about division of power, we have to think about it in terms of not just who has electoral office, but who also has a say in mainstream institutions. And this is where I think leftists or or normie Democrats should say, hey, um, Republicans and conservatives are not beyond the pale. They should have some, they should be able to play a role in culture. And I think so far, one thing that has pushed conservatives um, away and made them really paranoid and made them want to seize more power for themselves is this sense that we're not allowing them to have a share in cultural power 
and in cultural institutions, including academia, the arts, film, movies, whatever it might be. How do you how do you personally conceptualize uh, the role of individuals in all of this? Because you say, like you know, you and I have a role, et cetera. But I mean, I don't mean individuals like us. I mean political leaders, and I mean individuals, not leadership, not elites, but individuals. Because you know, it strikes me that's that's one of those things that that um, Machiavelli goes on about that to a certain extent. I mean, it's, 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 it's about the personality who founds orders, you know, and it's, it's, it's something that democratic discourse is pretty shitty about, I think, because it, 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 it focuses on these bigger forces and legitimation by the people. It almost, you know, uh, anthropomorphizes the people as some sort of agent when in fact, uh, you know, the people, when if if one is to grant that they should be anthropomorphized, it's like like a schizophrenic, uh, you know, moaning mute beast of a creature. It's 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 not a real person. The people, and so you know, I keep falling back on that question of like, what is the role of individuals? And you know, you just like look back in the last what uh, twelve years, um, and before that, W who. I don't know. You know, I, it's everyone's like trying to revisit George W. Bush and, and and get a sense of the guy and like say that maybe, you know, it's not as bad as it was. But I mean, in many ways, he was sort of a non-entity. You know, he's not really hmm. a leader. He was a he was a uh, like a, a friendly, goofy guy that had enough charisma that he appealed to certain people. But he, he wasn't really a leader, though. He liked to think of himself as a decider. Obama was much more of a of a, uh, you know, I think, uh, a self-consciously, um, uh, a self, he conceived himself as a leader. Now one can say that, that he pulled it off poorly. I, but I think, you know, there is an Obama, like an attempt to, to shape things. And I think Obama still conceived himself as someone who shapes events and things. And in that sense, I think is a more consequential person. I mean, going back to Bill Clinton, I think he too is is somehow more consequential. We can't say that Trump is anything but a very consequential individual. Um, I, I see. I imagine that Biden's not going to be very consequential for all sorts of reasons. So that that also suggests to me that you know we're in for not a particularly uh, I don't know hopeful time heading going into this. But what? How do you see the role of? of like individuals in shaping these sorts of destinies, or you think it's actually irrelevant, just gets, comes out in the wash because democracy. Well, I mean, didn't our friend Ben Judah write an interesting piece comparing Biden to some Russian autocrat leader? Yes. Yes, he did. Um, Brez. It was Brezhnev. Brezhnev. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just messing around. You know, it was Brezhnev. Yeah. But um, I don't really know a lot about Brezhnev, but um, I thought it sounded to me like from what I do know about him, this idea, like he was kind of like an old, like bobbling leader who he sort of marked the end of an era. Is that, is that fair to say? He was sort of a transitional character in a broader story. But in the broader story, right, is that, that I mean, that was a the huge problem for the Soviet Union is that, that you know, their leadership cadres were exhausted by the time it fell apart. It is interesting that, that Gorbachev did represent the new generation. He just 
fucks it up, basically. I mean, that's an unpopular thing to say. Everyone says he's a man of peace and he he managed managed uh, a new glory of humanity to emerge because he was at his, in his heart a liberal or something like that. That's false. Though. He was in his heart a communist and he wanted to reform the system. He was uh, enthusiastic about it and uh, thought he saw the way. He just fucked it up and it, it all fell apart on him. Uh, but basically, the, the the struggle for the Soviet Union is that they, they had no leadership, like from Brezhnev on. It was a bunch of sclerotic old apparatchik types who really – I mean actually it's a, it's a good point to bring in the Soviet Union because in many ways uh, it's 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 something that, that Lenin and Stalin set up and a bunch of people then just were, were system operators after that, you know. Um, and there there wasn't any sort of sense of leadership that that like any sense to shape and reshape. Gorbachev was a man who I think uh, – thought that he was able to shape and reshape, but he got, he got completely steamrolled by the world, by events. Uh, he mismanaged it. Um, Yeltsin was definitely a character that, that uh, you know, was a shaper of history and he left his mark. By the end of the time, of course, he was, he was drunk and, 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 and a mess and, and uh, you know, Russian society then yielded up Putin, another very singular leader who has shaped things and events, I would say. Um, so, Yeah. Uh, so what about uh, Brezhnev and, and Biden? Um, uh, <laughs> no, well, I'm asking well, what, you, what? How do you how do you how do you look at leaders? The role of individuals? How important well, look, is that? I think that um, I mean Trump has changed my view on this to some extent, and it, it Trump demonstrates that even though we have a constraining system that circum circumscribes what individuals can do in theory. In practice, you can have an unusual figure like Donald Trump, who actually changes the course of a nation through sheer force of will. Although I don't, I don't even know if force of will is the right way to describe what Donald Trump does, but someone who is so unshackled by norms and normal considerations of what is appropriate, that things that previously weren't possible become possible. So that's a lesson for me to take more or all of us really to take more seriously the power of idiosyncratic individuals who come once in a lifetime Donald Trump someone like him will never come again because he's a tr- totally singular figure but it it's enough for that one singular figure to come at one particular moment in a very unlikely way and then all of our lives will never be the same. But and that's he, a remarkable thing to really absorb intellectually, I think. But that's you know again like the the question there is is maybe take a step back and and look uh you had Kennedy, you know. Uh LBJ as well in his own way though in a very different way. Um you had Nixon, force of nature. Then you had like two nothings after him. Uh then you had Reagan, another force of nature. Then you had uh, uh, H.W., who I, I think, you know, for my, for my tastes, I, I, I quite like how he, uh, you know, uh, where he was coming from, where his team was coming from on a lot of issues. But overall, there's a real vacuum there. Uh, you know, the vision thing that, that, that he joked about himself, like as a real sort of like personality vacuum. Clinton fills it to a certain extent flawed person that he is but but he fills it he's a he's a larger than life character that 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 
to a certain extent shapes the moment. You know, that's that's one of those things I, I you know, uh, should have Ben Haddad on again because I think he, he talks about this really well. But it's that it's the role of the leader, the, the charismatic leader that that actually – you know, politics depends on it. I think a lot of political scientists who study democracy, for example, like to airbrush that stuff out. But, but ultimately, you know, the, the, the fate and the health of societies is very much, I think, in the hands of individuals, perhaps. Not that, again, that Trump is, you know, he's, he's as much, like I said, I think a, a symptom of deeper trends. You, you couldn't have had Trump elected in 1990, you know? Um, we, but, he was there and, 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 and we got him now. Um, but I wonder, you know, it's like, it's, it's when I get pessimistic and say, we're on like a glide slope down a lot of this, I do think that, you know, to your point about the sixties and we recovered from that, um, well, many we? well, arguably, uh, it's, it's, it's Reagan's sunny personality and, and his larger than life-ness that actually managed to pull it together and then did set a kind of consensus that, uh, Obama was very conscious about saying that, you know, he wanted to be the Democratic Reagan. He wanted to be the one that like reordered uh, the world and, and the whole sort of way we talk about politics for the, the next generation. I don't think he managed to do that, but he was yeah. consciously trying to. Um, well, so, again, you know, it's like maybe that's the, the, the road to hope is to think about think about like uh, that, that that's what saves us, not democracy, not agonism, not that like democracy organizes our our sort of you know, mutual enmities in the best sort of way. And therefore, as long as democracy is around, we're bound to be healthy. It's we need to hope that that we have sound leadership and not leadership in the sense of sound elites, but in fact, a sound individual emerging that reorders things. Well, um, I have a lot to say to that. I, I do want to ask you about Barack Obama, because here is a charismatic individual who in some sense, has become more and more irrelevant with every passing month and year since he left office. Someone who had such promise and was a singular figure in his own particular way is, you know, unusual story, his brilliance as far as we can tell. And no, and I shouldn't even say as far as we can tell. I think it's a Obama's story. He's clearly brilliant. He's clearly yeah, yeah brilliant exactly. Yeah. And I think Obama's story is a is a story of of tragedy that someone who was among the best and the brightest, someone who I remember feeling at the time in 2008 that we were blessed to have it almost as if God is, God had sent us because God wanted America to succeed and to recover from the Bush years. But we see what happened that someone so unusual was constrained by a circumstances. And in some ways, Trump, if he loses, will still be very consequential in various ways, but we'll, we might have a conversation two or three years from now if Biden wins and we'll say, well, maybe Trump wasn't as consequential as, he th- as we thought he would be. But we are running out of time and also we, ha- um, we can save some of this for our special second part. And we would encourage our lis- listeners that if you enjoyed this part of the conversation, to consider subscribing <laughs> for the price of a latte by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and, and um, paying $5 a month to kind of get bonus episodes. And also, we hope, uh, bonus um, articles and posts, which we hope to do in the coming weeks. 
So consider doing that if you like if you like us and if you enjoyed this episode, right, Demir? That's right, Chief Marketing Officer Shadi Hamid. <laughs> wow, I'm really it's it doesn't come naturally to me. It's, it's getting easier it's though, hard. isn't it? It's getting easier. <laughs> yeah, I hope Cap- so. Capitalism, Shadi. Capitalism. Yes, a good note on which to end. Indeed, always. Thanks. The market. Okay, yeah. Demir. Talk soon. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.